Section 2 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 9, Part 2. It was about this period that the dreadful malady which had appeared a few months before King James's death began to assume a painful and alarming form. When Her Majesty consulted the celebrated Fagon on her case and entreated him to tell her the truth without reserve, he frankly acknowledged that the cancer was incurable, but assured her at the same time that her existence might be prolonged for many years if she would submit to a series of painful operations and adhere strictly to the regimen he would prescribe. She replied, that life was too wearisome to her to be worth the trouble of preserving on such terms. But, repenting of her passionate exclamation, as an act of sinful impatience, she added, that she would endeavor to conform herself to the will of God, and was willing to do everything her physicians required of her. She gives the following account of her progress towards convalescence in a letter to her friend, Angelique Priolo. It is certain that I have suffered enough with my breast during fifteen days, but it is also true that there were fifteen in which I did not suffer more, and that for the last three or four days it appears better than it has done for some months. Nevertheless, I fear that the anguish will return after a time. It must be as God pleases. I supplicate him always, and I entreat you to do the same, that he will deign to diminish my ills or augment my patience. I entreat him with all my heart for the alleviation of your sufferings, but above all for the sanctification of your soul, for I regard that of the first importance, as I know you do that of mine. The king, my son, has continued well since my sickness. God never sends all my crosses at the same time. I hope that God, of his grace, will give me strength to go to Chalot about the eleventh or twelfth of next month. My journey to Fontainebleau is not yet certain, nor can it be for the present. My daughter trembles with fear, lest I should not go. I went the other day to Marley. The coach did not increase my indisposition, God be thanked. Unfit as poor Mary Beatrice was for the excitement and fatigue of business at that period, she was compelled to rouse herself from the languid repose in which her bodily sufferings had compelled her to indulge, in order to decide on a question of painful import to her. Simon Fraser, generally styled Lord Lovat, had immediately on the death of King William proclaimed the exiled representative of the House of Stuart, King of Scotland, in his own county of Inverness, and soon after, presenting himself at the court of Saint-Germain for the purpose of persuading the Queen Mother, as Mary Beatrice was there entitled, to allow the young prince to follow up this daring act in his favor by making his appearance among his faithful friends in Scotland, engaging, at the same time, to raise an army of 12,000 men in the Highlands, provided the King of France would assist them with arms and money, and land 5,000 men at Dundee and 500 at Fort William. Mary Beatrice, enfeebled by her long illness, depressed by the disappointment of the vain hope she had cherished, that her stepdaughter, Anne, would not presume to ascend the throne of Great Britain after her oft-repeated penitential professions to her unfortunate father, and in defiance of his deathbed injunctions, 
listened doubtfully to the project. Her two favorite ministers, Carl and Middleton, had united in persuading her that it was only through the medium of treaties and amicable conventions that her son could be established as the reigning sovereign of Great Britain, that his cause would be injured by the introduction of French troops, and that there was reason to believe his sister Anne cherished favorable intentions towards him, which would be inevitably destroyed by attempts to disturb her government. On the other hand, the Duke of Perth, who was the governor of the prince, and had been much beloved by the late king, endeavored to stimulate the queen to a more energetic policy. He showed her a letter from the Marquess of Drummond, his eldest son, assuring him that the principal lords of Scotland were ready to take up arms in favor of their hereditary sovereign, if he might only be permitted to appear among them, nay, more, that a deputation from them was ready to make a voyage to France, to tender fealty in person to the young king. The Marquess of Drummond, Sir John Murray, and Sir Robert Stuart, the head of the clan of Stuart, wrote also to the queen and to the French minister, the Marquis of Torcy, by Lord Lavat, in whom they entirely confided, to urge the same, assuring her that Scotland was ready to throw off the yoke of the Queen of England, and to assert her independence as a separate kingdom, under the scepter of the representative of the royal house of Stuart. Ireland was eager to follow the same course, but it was necessary that he should appear among them, for it could not be expected that sacrifices should be made, and perils of life and limb incurred, for an invisible chief. Middleton opposed their plans, and urged the doubtful integrity of Lovat, and the certain dangers to which the prince and his friends would be exposed, and that he had better await patiently, as Queen Anne was childless, and, though still in the meridian of life, her extreme corpulence and general infirmity of constitution rendered it improbable that she would occupy the throne long, and, as a matter of course, the prince would, on her death, peacefully succeed to the throne. In the meantime, he was too young to exercise the functions of regality in his own person, and would be better employed in finishing his education under the eye of his royal mother, than roaming about in a wild, unsettled country like Scotland, with rude highland chiefs, from whom he might acquire habits of intemperance and ferocity, and be exposed to the perils of battle and siege, where, as a matter of necessity, he must conduct himself with the daring gallantry that would be expected from a royal knight-errant. Above all, there was the chance of his falling into the hands of the party that had persecuted him in his cradle, and even before he saw the light. Mary Beatrice was only too ready to yield to reasoning, which was addressed to the fond weakness of maternal love and fear. The terrors of the act of attainer that hung over her boy were always present to her. She remembered the fate of another disinherited and rejected Prince of Wales of disputed birth, the gallant, springing young Plantagenet, Edward of Lancaster, stabbed by ruthless hands in the presence of the victorious sovereign, whose crown he had presumed to challenge as his right. There was also the unforgotten scaffold of the youthful Conradin of Swabia, the tearful theme of many a tale of poetry and romance in her native Italy, to appall the heart of the fond mother, and she obstinately, and with impassioned emotion, reiterated her refusal to allow her boy to incur any personal peril during his minority, 
and while he remained under her guardianship. Severely as the conduct of Mary Beatrice at this juncture has been censured in the Perth memorials, it must at any rate exonerate her from the calumnious imputation of having imposed a spurious error on England, since, if she had been capable of the baseness imputed to her by Burnett, Fuller, Old Mixon, and their servile copyists, she would have used her political puppet in any way that appeared likely to tend to her own aggrandizement, without being deterred by inconvenient tenderness for an alien to her blood, especially as her young daughter would be the person benefited by his fall if he became a victim. With the prospect of a crown for her daughter, and the dignity and power of a queen regent of Great Britain for herself, would such a woman, as she has been represented by the above writers, have hesitated to place a suppositious prince in the gap for the accomplishment of her selfish object? But the all-powerful instincts of nature were obeyed by Mary Beatrice, in her anxious care for the preservation of the son of her bosom, that unerring test whereby the wisest of men was enabled to discern the true mother of the child from the impostor, who only pretended to be so. The leaven of selfish ambition had no place in the heart of the fallen queen. She was ardently desirous of seeing her son recalled to the throne, which she at any rate regarded as his rightful inheritance, and her portionless daughter, recognized as Princess Royal of Great Britain, and after her brother, presumptive heiress of the realm, a station which the extraordinary beauty and fine qualities of the young Louisa promised to adorn. As for herself, she had felt the pains and penalties of royalty too severely, to desire the responsibility of governing her former subjects in quality of queen regent. The genuine simplicity of her character and the warmth of her affections are unaffectedly manifested in the following letter to her friend Angelique. Saint-Germain, this 17th of July. I have but one moment, my dear mother, to tell you that I am very well, and my children also. I went to Marley on Thursday, and found Madame de M, that is Madame de Maintenon, ill enough, but thank God, she finds herself at present much better. Lady Turconnell assures me that all the embroidery will be done for the beginning of September. I beg you not to spare my purse about it, for things of that kind should not be done at all, unless they be done well. And for this, above all, which regards the dear and holy king, I would give to my very chemise. I rejoice that our sick are cured, and that the ceremony of the new novice has been so well accomplished. I am hurried to the last moment. Adieu. I embrace you at the foot of the cross. Superscribed to the Mother Priolo. The embroidery mentioned by Mary Beatrice in this letter, and which she exhorts the abbess not to spare expense in having well executed, was for the decoration of the tribune in the conventual church of Chalot, where the heart of her deceased consort, King James, was enshrined, and was to be placed there at the anniversary of his death. That day was kept by Mary Beatrice as a strict fast to the end of her life, and it was commemorated by the religieuses of Shiloh, with all the pompous solemnities of the Romish rite. A vast number of persons, of whom the aged bishop of Autun was the foremost, asserted that they have been cured of various maladies by touching the velvet pall that covered his coffin and entreating the benefit of his prayers and intercessions. 
These superstitious notions are, doubtless, the result of highly excited imaginations wrought upon by the enthusiastic reverence with which the memory of this unfortunate monarch was held in France. The grief of his faithful consort was beguiled by these marvelous legends, although she at first listened doubtfully, as if conscious of her own weak point, and dreading imposition. But the instances became numerous, and being attested by many ecclesiastics of her own church, she soon received them with due unction, and flattered herself that the time was not far distant, when the name of the departed object of her undying love would be added to the catalogue of royal saints and confessors in the Romish calendar. When Mary Beatrice entered upon the second year of her widowhood, she passed several days in meditation, prayer, and absolute seclusion from the world. During that period, she neither received visitors, wrote letters, nor even transacted business, farther than works of absolute necessity. On the 2nd of October, the day she came into public again, she and her son visited King James' nearest paternal relative and dearest friend, the abbess of Maubisson, the eldest daughter of the Queen of Bohemia, for whom she cherished a spiritual friendship. She also held an especial conference with the celebrated Father Mazelon, the Bishop of Autun, Cardinal Noels, and other dignitaries of the Church of Rome, on matters of which she appeared to consider of greater importance than affairs of state, namely, an inscription for the urn which contained the heart of her deceased lord, and the various tributes that had been paid to his memory, in funeral sermons, orations, and circular letters. She writes on these, to her, interesting topics, a long letter to the ex-abbess of Chalot. The following passage betrays the proneness of human affections to degenerate into idolatry. With regard to the epitaph on the heart of our sainted king, I am of opinion that it ought not to be made so soon, since it is not permitted to expose that dear heart to the public to be venerated as a relic, which, however, it will be one day, if it please God, and I believe that it ought to be delayed until that time. Monsieur Doutoun appears of the same opinion, and also Monsieur Le Cardinal, who was with me yesterday two hours on my coming out of my retreat, which has decided me entirely on that point, by saying it ought not to be done at present. Meantime, they are going to make that an epitaph for our parish here, which I forgot to tell him, that is the cardinal, yesterday, or rather, I should say, to remind him of it, for he knows it very well. The literary reader will perhaps be amused, to find Her Majesty in the next place, entering so far into the technicalities of publishing, as to discuss new editions, printers, and the business of the press, with Sister Francoise Angelique Priolo, who appears to have been the fair chronicler of the convent of Chalot, to whose reminiscences of the royal widow, her biographer, is so much indebted. The well-known obituary of James II, published in the circular letter of Chalot, seems to have emanated from the same friendly pen, for Mary Beatrice says, About the new edition of our circular letter, I pray you to tell our mother, who is willing, I believe, that this letter should serve for her as well as you. That it is true, I told Monsieur de Autun, that we would talk it over together at the end of the month, not thinking that you were obliged to go to press before then. Monsieur le Cardinal told me yesterday, that unless I wished for the impression myself, he saw no immediate reason for the reprint, 
but if you are pressed for it, or if you apprehend the printer will be otherwise engaged, I have nothing to say against the first part, but you must see that they omit all that regards me, that is to say, that they content themselves with naming my name, and mentioning that I was among you for three days. As to the rest, I confess that I am not of opinion, that they ought to add anything new to the letter, at least not before the abridged copies that I had printed are all gone, and Monsieur de Autun and Monsieur le Cardinal are of the same mind. But really I cannot imagine that there can be any such hurry about it, as to prevent us from waiting till we shall have discussed the matter together, for I intend, if it please God, to come to Chalot on the 23rd till the 27th, and then perhaps my reasons will convert you to my opinion, or yours may make me change it, for it seems to me in general that we are much of the same mind. I thank our mother and all our sisters with my whole heart, and you especially, my beloved mother, for what you did at the anniversary of my sainted king. All those who were present considered that everything was admirably performed, and with much solemnity, which gave me great pleasure. For if there remain in me any sensibility for it, it is only in those things connected with the memory of the dear king. I have read with pleasure, although not without tears, his funeral oration, which I considered very fine, and I have begged the Abbe Roguette to have it printed. I entreated our mother to send the bills of all the expenses, without forgetting the smallest, any more than the largest. I will endeavor to pay them immediately, or at least a good part of them, and after that is done, I shall still owe you much. For the heartfelt affection, with which you have done all, is beyond payment, and will hold me indebted to you for the rest of my life. Madame de Maintenon has been very ill since she came to Fontainebleau. Last Thursday, the fever left her, and for four days, she was much better. She went out last Sunday, was at Mass, and they considered her recovered, but on Monday, the fever attacked her again. I await tidings of her today, with impatience, having sent an express yesterday to make inquiries. Monsieur de Autun was charged to request Père Mazelon from me, for his sermon at St. Francis de Sales. I hope he will not have forgotten it. On reading over your letter, I find it so ill-written in all respects, that I know not whether you will be able to comprehend anything. Did I not force myself to write it, I believe I should forget how to do it entirely. I am ashamed, but with you, my dear mother, you know my heart. There is less need of words." The royal widow was roused from her dreams of spiritual communion with her departed lord by the turmoils and perplexities which awaited her in the affairs of nominal regency. In the autumn of 1702, the subtle adventurer, Simon, Lord Lovat, presented himself once more at Saint-Germain, bringing with him letters from two faithful adherents of the House of Stuart, the Earl of Errol and the Earl Mariscal of Scotland, Lord Keith. Aware that he had been an object of distrust to Mary Beatrice, he sought to win her confidence and favor, by professing to have become a convert to the doctrines of the Church of Rome. He had succeeded in persuading not only the Duke of Perth, but the Pope's nuncio, of his sincerity, and he was presented by that ecclesiastic to Her Majesty, as a perfectly regenerate character, who was willing to atone for all past errors, by his efforts for the establishment of her son as King of Scotland, 
as a preparatory step for placing him on the throne of Great Britain. Simple and truthful as infancy herself, Mary Beatrice suspected not that motives of a base and treacherous nature could have led him to a change of creed so greatly opposed at that time to all worldly interests. She was willing to believe that all his professions of zeal for the church and devotion to the cause of her son were sincere. His specious eloquence was employed to persuade her that Scotland was ready to declare her son king, and to maintain him as such against the powers of his sister Anne, but they wanted money and for the present secrecy. The latter was a quality in which the Regency Court of Saint-Germain was notoriously deficient, as the devoted partisans of the Stuart cause had found too often to their cost. The fact that no secret could be kept at Saint-Germain had passed into a warning proverb with the great nobles of Scotland, and served to deter several of those who were desirous of the restoration of the old royal line from taking steps for compassing this object. Although Mary Beatrice was in the habit of disclosing her cares, whether spiritual, personal, or political, to her friends at Chalot, she relied so implicitly on the supposed impossibility of confidence that was reposed in such a quarter, ever finding its way to the rival court at St. James's, that she suffered her mind to be imbued with suspicions that the Earl of Middleton was not trustworthy. Lovat assured her that the success of the confederacy of his friends in the Highlands depended entirely on her keeping it secret from him. Thus she was conjoled into the folly of deceiving her ostensible adviser, the man who stood responsible for her political conduct, and she stripped herself of the last poor remnant of property she possessed in the world, by sending the residue of her jewels to Paris to be sold for twenty thousand crowns, the sum demanded by Lovat for the equipment of the Highlanders, whom he had engaged to raise for the restoration of her son. Lovat also insinuated suspicions that the most powerful partisan of her family in Scotland, the Earl of Arran, afterwards Duke of Hamilton, intended to revive the ancient claims of his family to the crown of that realm, and thus probably traverse the secret overtures for a future marriage between the heir of that house and the young Princess Louisa. Nothing alarmed the widowed queen so much as the possibility of her daughter ever being set up by any party whatsoever as a rival of her son. The ruin that might have ensued to the Jacobite nobles and gentry from the rash confidence placed by Mary Beatrice and Lovat was averted by the sagacity of Louis XIV's minister, Torcy, who gave the Earl of Middleton timely warning of the intrigue. Middleton, though deeply piqued at the want of confidence shown by his royal mistress, was too faithful a servant to allow her to fall into the snares of the unprincipled adventurer. He gravely discussed the matter with her, complained of being a useless tool himself, but besought her not to send Lovat to Scotland without being accompanied by some person of known and tried integrity to keep watch on him and report his proceedings to her and her council of regency. Torsey made the same demand in the name of the king, his master. Captain John Murray, brother to Sir David Murray of Stanhope, was entrusted with this office, and arrived with Lovat in the north of England early in the summer of 1703. The exiled queen, in the midst of the cares and perplexities with which she found herself beset, as the guardian of a prince so unfortunately situated as her son, 
was struggling with the pangs and apprehensions excited by the progress of her terrible malady. In one of her letters to the abbess of Chalot, dated Saint-Germain, this 2nd of September, she gives the following account of herself. I continued in the same languishing state in which I was at Chalot, three or four days after I left you, and since that, on my return here, I had my breast lance many times for several days. After this was over, the pain ceased, as well as the languor, and I am much better. I took, the day before yesterday, a little bath, which I shall repeat more or less, for I have already bathed fifteen times. Beaulieu will see you tomorrow or Tuesday, and he will give you an account of what Mariscal said after he had seen me. He goes to Paris to see that woman, of whom you know, and those who are in her hands, who are better. They will bring her others on whom to try this remedy. Mariscal has assured me that there are not any of them whose case is near so bad as mine. In the meantime, I avow to you that I am not without apprehension, and that I have great need of prayer, for we must begin and finish with that. I request of our dear mother and sisters to unite with me in this, having no necessity to explain to them my wants, which they know of old. I must ask you to send the money to the Benedictine Fathers for the Masses, in order that they may not know that it is for me. Mary Beatrice goes on to explain the object which she hoped to obtain by means far less likely to be pleasing to the Almighty than the holy and humble spirit of pious resignation which she expresses. Her sainted king, as she fondly calls her departed lord, is to be invoked to the end, continues she, that he may entreat for me, of God, an entire resignation to his holy will, like what he had himself when on earth, and that I may feel a holy indifference as to the cure or augmentation of my malady, and that the Lord would inspire the physicians and surgeons, in their treatment of me, to do whatever may conduce most to his glory, and the good of my soul, in healing me, if by that means I am still able to serve him better, and to be useful to my children, or else to give me the patience and fortitude necessary to suffer the greatest torments, if it should be more agreeable to him. It is two years today, continues the royal widow, and this remark proves that her letter was written in the year 1703. Since the king, that is James, fell ill on the day of St. Stephen, king of Hungary, after a few more explanations about the course of religious exercises, she wished to have performed in her behalf. She sends her kind messages to several of the ladies of Chalot, and especially to Sister Mademoiselle Gabrielle, in whose grief, she says, I sympathize with all my heart, for I know what it is to have lost a good mother, but her virtue will sustain her under it, and God will be to her in the place of all she has lost. It is that consolation I desire for her. Notwithstanding the earnest wish of Mary Beatrice to submit herself to the will of her heavenly father, feeble nature could not contemplate the dreadful nature of the death that awaited her without shrinking. The regular medical practitioners could only palliate the anguish of the burning pangs which tormented her. The nuns of Chalot, though to this day the remnant of that community professed to be possessed of a specific for cancers, had failed to arrest the progress of the disease in its earlier stages, and now she was tempted to put herself under the care of a female, who boasted of having performed great cures in cases of the kind. 
Madame de Maintenon, knowing how desperate were the remedies often employed by empirics, was alarmed lest the sufferings of her unfortunate friend should be aggravated and her death hastened by allowing any unqualified person to tamper with her disease. This lady appears to have behaved in a tenderly sympathizing manner to the royal sufferer, whose account of the interview must be given in her own words. We wept much together at Sanseur, at the sad state in which I found myself. She does not much advise me to put myself into the hands of this woman. She said that if I began to give ear to those sort of people, I should have charlatans besetting me every day with offers of remedies, which would keep me in a perpetual state of uncertainty and embarrassment. However, she agreed that they ought to give a fair trial of her, that is the doctress's, remedy. This we will do, and in the meantime, I will try to tranquilize my mind and resign myself entirely into the hands of God, and I can do no more. The progress of her direful malady appears to have been arrested for a time by the operations to which she had submitted. She describes herself in her next letter as better, though very weak. She says, She hopes to have the pleasure of coming to spend a week at Chalot, if her health continues to improve, and to go one day to Paris while there, if strong enough. But if not, continues she, I shall repose myself with my dear good mother. I shall hope to find myself in excellent health after your broth. Her majesty appears to have derived benefit both in health and spirits from this little journey. Mademoiselle de la Motte, a lady of noble family, who boarded in the convent, was suffering from the same complaint as the poor queen, and was disposed to try the cancer doctress at Paris. The queen's French surgeon, Beaulieu, had placed a poor woman who was thus afflicted under the care of the doctress, in order to give her remedies a fair trial, and he was disposed to think favorably of the result. After her return to Saint-Germain, the queen writes the following letter to calm the apprehensions of her friend, Angelique Priolo, who had heard that she was alarmingly ill. Saint-Germain, the 9th of November. In the name of heaven, my dear mother, be at rest with regard to me. I can assure you with truth that my health is good, my strength entirely renewed. I eat well, I sleep, not always well, but never very ill. As for my breast, if there be any change, since I quitted you, it is for the better. I think so myself, and I am not accustomed to flatter myself. Beaulieu went yesterday to Paris, and assures me that he found the sick woman considerably better, since the fortnight that he had placed her in the house of the woman, where she has been well looked to and attended, and eaten nothing injurious. I know not if Mademoiselle de la Motte has done what we resolved on, but there is time yet, for I believe it is nothing so much advanced as my malady. I have had no pain myself for some days, and I find myself at present sufficiently at rest. Be so yourself, my dear and too good mother, and begin your retreat without disquiet. I suppose you will enter upon it to-morrow, for it will not be more than ten days before we shall see each other. Send me this evening tidings of your health, and take care of it for the love of me, who have such need of your care and of your advice. Adieu, my dear mother. Let us come to God, let us live but for Him, and let us love only Him. Since writing my letter, they have resolved to give the holy viaticum to Lady Almond. 
I send to you six books to distribute thus. To our mother, yourself, Mademoiselle de la Motte, Monsieur de Autun, Monsieur de Brienne, Le Abbe de Roguette, but do not send this till the last, as I have not yet given to Monsieur le Cardinal de Noël, or to Monsieur le Nuncio, which I shall do in two or three days, after having sent to the Princes of the Blood, having as yet given but to the King and to Madame de Maintenon. The books mentioned by Mary Beatrice were copies of a brief memoir of James II, which had been prepared and printed at her expense. It is written in French, in a feeble, inflated style, having many words and few facts, and those by no means interesting to historians, being chiefly descriptive of his devotional exercises. The royal widow, however, frequently alludes to this work in the course of her correspondence with the holy ladies of Chalot, who were, of course, highly edified with it. In a subsequent letter to the abbess of that house, she says, I send you this letter by Father Beauchet, and a book of the life of the king, for him to give you, to replace that which you have given to him. We are all very well, continues her majesty. And my son does not mount his horse with such impetuosity as to incur any danger. Other letters of the widowed queen at this period are of a less cheerful character. Sickness was in her household and her family. Her son was dangerously ill, and the friend of her childhood, the Countess of Almond, struggling with a mortal malady. Death had already entered her palace, and begun to desolate her little world, by thinning the train of faithful servants who had followed her and her deceased consort into exile. On the 6th of December, 1703, she writes to her friend, Angelique Priolo. We have lost, this morning, a good old man, named Dupuis, he had been with our sainted king more than forty years, and was himself turned of eighty. He was a very good man, and I doubt not that God has taken him to his mercy. Our poor Lady Almond has begun to amend a little since yesterday. I hope that we shall accomplish her business, if it pleases God. I thank our mother and sisters for the prayers they have made for her, and request their continuation, for she is a person very dear to me and has been useful to me for nearly forty years. But we have another want for your prayers, for the king, my son, was attacked with fever yesterday afternoon. I hope, however, nothing will come of it, for he is not worse this morning. The shivering began at seven o'clock. He did not go to bed till near nine, and the perspiration lasted till near five. They have given him a remedy this morning, which has greatly relieved him, and I hope the worst is over. We cannot, however, be sure till tomorrow is past. So if you have no tidings from me after tomorrow, you are to conclude that he is better. My own health appears to me better than it has ever been. God grant that I may serve him the better for it. The Countess of Almond, for whom Mary Beatrice expresses so much solicitude in the above letter, was the Anna Vittoria Montecuculli of the early pages of her biography, the same who accompanied her to England when she left her own country as the virgin bride of the Duke of York. Lady Almond was, with the exception of Madame Molza, the last surviving of the companions of her childhood by whom Mary Beatrice was attended on that occasion. One of the few who could sympathize with her feelings towards the land of her birth or enter into her reminiscences of the old familiar palace when they were both brought up. 
Her Majesty mentions her again with tender concern in the following letter to Angelique Priolo. Saint-Germain, the 26th of March. The Abbé de Roguette will charge himself with this letter and save me from sending my courier today as I had intended. The letter of Milady Strickland was already written. You will see that I greatly approve of your thought of putting Mademoiselle de Dempsey at Amiens. I wish they would take her for three months, and I would pay her pension. She will give you an account also of Lady Almond, who has had a bad night. However, I don't think she is so near death as I believed the other day. They decide absolutely that she goes to forge. I greatly fear she will never return, but they must do all they can, then leave the event to God. Milady Strickland gives you the account of my health, which is good, better indeed than usual. I hope that nothing will prevent me from embracing you, my dear mother, on Monday next, before Compline. It must not, however, wait for me, for I am not very sure of my time. I believe that I shall go to Marley one day this week. On the 19th of April, Her Majesty thanks Angelique Priolo for the sympathy she had expressed for the great loss, which, says she, I have had of our dear Lady Almond. You know better than any other the cause I have to regret her, and you give so true a description of my feelings that I have nothing to add to it. Yet I must own to you that my heart is so full of grief in its desolation since my great loss that all others appear of less account to me than they would have done before that time. I have been so often interrupted since I have been writing to you that I know not what I have said, and I am too much pressed for time to write to our mother. The king, Louis the Fourteenth, came today. Madame de Maintenon may, perhaps, tomorrow. Lady Buckley gives you an account of the sickness of the king, my son. It will be of no consequence, please God, but I was alarmed the day before yesterday in the evening. I am grieved for the indisposition of Mademoiselle de Lamotte. Assure her of my regard, and the beloved Economé. I see well how much the good heart of the dear portress has felt the death of Lady Almond. I thank you and our mother for all the prayers you make and have made for that dear departed one. They cannot doubt of her happiness for the history of her life and of her death, which had all the marks of a death precious in the sight of God. Alas, I do not believe it had been so near. It is impossible to tell you more, for I have not a moment of time. End of section 2